Welcome to the RSP cast, Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, week 14, or week 15, week 15, week 15. Week 15. It's it's kind of like week 14 because we get the extra game this year because of the 17 game schedule. So in a way, it's week 14, but it's really week 15. I guess it's week 15. Maybe we're, it's week 14. We're just in a way station for time right now. That's probably what's going I've on. I watched Interstellar this weekend. It was one of my favorite movies. And yeah, I definitely feel like, I don't know if you've seen it, but I feel yes. like Matthew McConaughey at the end of it sort of floated behind the bookcase right now where it's like, I don't understand time, space, time, space, continuum right now. I just know I have to do a show. That's all I know. Well, speaking of time, space, we're going to call an audible early on and just ask about last night's game because there was certainly a lot of fun time-space continuum throws that were put out there by one Kyler Murray and Matthew Stafford. What are your thoughts on the game? Um, I, th- I think Sean McVay's back. That's kind of my main thought of it. I, you know, And we've talked about this. Some people have written about it. Benjamin Solak wrote about it. Earlier in the year, look, they were going five wide. They were going three by two empty, just letting Stafford rip it from the gun. And, and teams sort of figured it out. As we've seen before, teams figured out what Sean McVay was doing. Could McVay adjust? I think he finally has. And what was the adjustment? You go back to the Jared Goff playbook. You're seeing under center, play action, boot concepts. But now you've got a quarterback with a cannon and with the aggression to take advantage of stuff downfield. Like, for example, like with Justin Herbert, too, you run these under center boot action stuff. You've got the post and the over. Most quarterbacks, they just take the over. Jared Goff will take the over, the easy throw, the short one. But when you've got a guy like Stafford or Herbert who's willing to say, no, 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 where I'm going, I don't need the over. I'm going to hit the deep post over the top or the deep throwback work it away from me because I can, that unlocks the potential of that offense. And so I, I think McVay has figured some stuff out going back to the golf playbook, but doing it with Matthew Stafford, that's huge. Um, you know, I, I still think Arizona is going to be in the mix at the end, but I think this was a big win for the Rams, and it was a big example of, McGaw- of McVay figuring some stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's some things that you can see with this offense, regardless of whether they're going five wide or whether they're going back to the golf playbook. And you alluded to that. Mark, when you talk about what Matt Stafford's willing to do, but you've seen this from the beginning of the year with Matt Stafford, which is they, you can look at Van Jefferson, you know, you look at Van Jefferson and you know that when, when the Rams are going to go with a slow developing play action, look that Van Jefferson, who is not a speedster, but has been on a number of big plays this year is going to be that guy who drifts behind the defense. And I won't say, drift i mean he's running fast and he is certainly you know working hard to run those posts or the deep crossers but they they are giving their matt stafford's feeding him the ball on deep routes that wind up behind or across the field on coverage that doesn't keep up with him you know not to the level that they should and I think there's part of a little bit of an element of surprise with that because when you have a strong-arm guy and you've got a possession receiver, because let's be honest, I mean, in most offenses, Van Jefferson would be a possession receiver. But in with the Rams and with the other L.A. team, you get guys like Guyton, um, you know, who and Tyron Johnson, and, you know, last year. and. Yep. And a guy like Van Jefferson, who aren't slow, but not they're not necessarily known as like speedsters. And they're doing things like that. So that's pretty cool to see, 
you know, as I joke, Neilis Frank Gore actually, you know, run the ball with the toughness that he's always exhibited throughout his career and, and play well. That's been nice to see, you know, just, you know, from that standpoint and getting Von Miller and watching yeah. Von Miller handle Kyler Murray to an extent, you know, be able to at least cut off some of the big plays that that Kyler Murray can get from leaving the pocket was nice. But I, I especially liked watching Kyler Murray um, this week. It was nice to see, you know, for me, it was one was watching a guy like James Conner, who, you know, yeah. I watched him last year and thought his demise is greatly exaggerated. But and but. You know, the Steelers' offensive line was not good. You wondered if teams were just going to buy into the fact that he's just was a one-year wonder type and maybe not all that great. And to hear, you know, once again, to hear a head coach of a team go, we didn't know what we had in James Conner as a receiver, tells me that what's going on with the scouting of the players that you add right. to your roster? Because this guy has always been an excellent receiver, um, you know, and that was on display in Pittsburgh, maybe not as often, but certainly you can look at his game and go, wow, this guy can really catch in the same way that, you know, we've seen, and it's been the repeat thing with Leonard Fournette, you know, the, the same thing. And here's another, and he's a guy who's got over 1100 yards of offense, you know, and 10 touchdowns to his game heading yeah. into the, you know, to the stretch run you know, numbers that probably Christian McCaffrey would envy at this point, you know, and people think, well, he didn't catch the ball much at LSU, but when you watch him at, you know, I remember watching his high school tape, which is something I rarely do and thinking this guy, I mean, he may not have the body type for it, but he's, he's, you know, he's a few meals away from tight end in terms of the role that you could give him as an H back. I mean, there's a guy at UAB by the name of um, Garrett Prince who um, is a 240-pound tight, you know, H-back Noah Gray type, who, you know, Leonard Fournette could have been that if he wasn't such a good runner. Um, right. So, you know, it's it's interesting how teams look at things and they have a book on a guy, but they don't bother to keep updating it. And I think that was what was fascinating to yeah, me. Yeah, it's something that we talk about a lot, the idea of, like, teams that do the pro side scouted well versus the teams that don't. And the teams that are able to find guys sort of in free agency or via trade that aren't working in one environment, but realize that, look, there's one little thing that they do well, that's going to help us and then go acquire them. Those are the teams that tend to be successful. Well, this is a Patriots sub sub answer right here. <laughs> it is, you know, kind of it a is. subtweet of, on the, on the value of the Patriots pro scouting department, which is obviously one of the best. Um, well, one of the best things that you can probably get for yourself in terms of deals all year on football is the rookie scouting portfolio, which I will be making a pre-sale period available starting tomorrow, tomorrow being Tuesday, December 15th. Um, and you will be able to get this product that a lot of people you'll see in the, in the testimonial say it's worth twice that or three times that value. You can get it for 1995 um, it's normally on sale for twenty one ninety five. You get a pre draft, you get a post draft. Um, last year, it was literally a thousand pages of written content that you would read, bookmarked in a very easy way to look around and find things like scouting reports that are detailed. Um, 
you know, write-ups that are, you know, more entertaining to read, but give you an opportunity to see what the scouting reports are about with these players. I show you, take you through the entire process of how I grade players. So if you wanted to do it yourself, if you had the time and were crazy and decided <laughs> that you wanted to do it yourself, you would have a template and framework to do that. And I know that a lot of people, you know, from fantasy players to um, scouts, to media dig the rsp it's been around since 2006 and you know you can get it for 1995 at matt waldman or go directly to mattwaldman.com. and if you're like listen i don't want your stinking discount i want to pay the full price and literally there are people who tell me that on a regular basis i'm waiting for the period to be over this is going to be the the period's going to end on christmas day the 25th and then the regular pre-purchase period without the discount you can get it for 21.95 will be available you know on the 26th moving onward and i usually try and send out a little bit of a you know heads up early for people to download who've already prepaid um, as a thank you you also get a newsletter that comes out multiple times a year and i'll even put i'm even putting out the uh, dynasty rankings um for pre-sale but there will not be a discount for that that's $24.95 um, and you know it's a great compendium to the RSP pre-draft post-draft um, and a percentage of the sales up to a cap of $5,000 now goes to Darkness to Light an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse through training individuals and organizations on the danger you know on basically signs that someone's being groomed and how to you know, people who are at high, kids who are at high risk for that, um, as well as helping organizations, individuals understand how to approach the problem when a child has reported abuse so that you don't compound the problem. Because oftentimes that, that abuse is compounded by family members that don't believe and by, you know, by organizations that try to protect its image more than they try to protect the person who reported it and as a result end up hurting their image even more if you're going to look at it in the most Machiavellian way as opposed to the the way the most compassionate way that one should um, and you know obviously it's a great organization you they have scored a 100 on the charity navigator site which is a great site that gives you research into how financially responsible this group is and the RSP has been given to this since I believe 2011 or 2012, um, you know, and so we're, you know, very proud to be a part of an organization that covers a subject that's very difficult for a lot of people to, um, you know, talk about because, you know, oftentimes it involves families um, and it's not the, it's not as I would joke and try to joke on a very serious subject. It's not about, it's usually not about the, the creepo and the white van paneled van with no windows offering candy. It's usually an aunt or an uncle or a father or mother or a brother or sister who's much older, that kind of behavior. And that's why it's so difficult to talk about, but at the same time, so important to do so. So credit to people in the football community who have like Derek Mason, who has talked about his own experience um, with that as well as, um, I'm trying to remember his name, and I can't. The the fullback for the Saints, Heath. Um, uh, yeah. Well, 
you know Heath Evans. Heath Evans, that's right. Heath Evans as well, you know, and those are two guys in in football who've talked about this particular experience and and them being victims or survivors is probably the right term, survivors of this particular um, phenomenon. So um, absolutely, the RSP great way to to learn more about foot about football valuation learn more about the rookies have fun doing you know reading about them seeing videos on them and then getting updates and you're given to a great cause all right so matt yeah we have some news yes uh 16 minutes ago we were recording this on tuesday afternoon and it is now 118 on the east coast and 16 minutes ago wesleyan's own kimberly martin who covers the league does a brilliant job doing it sent out a tweet uh here in brown's have a significant number, significant is in quotes, of COVID cases among players, including multiple key guys on offense. Stay tuned. And now, two minutes ago, Adam Schefter, Browns wide receiver Jarvis Landry, and guard Wyatt Teller tested positive and are being placed on the COVID reserve list. There you go. So, I mean, this is... You know, this has been a difficult season for the Just AFC when we thought North. we were out, yep. COVID pulls us back in. Yeah. Because it does seem like, and if you sort of go big picture, not just the NFL-wide, but sports-wide, hockey's dealing with a huge outbreak now. You're seeing outbreaks in the English Premier League and in, in soccer across the pond. This is going to be the timing of it very bad if you're in fantasy playoffs. Like, you've got to now navigate – Let's not forget, we get Saturday football. Got to set your lineups earlier, uh, boys and girls. But now you're going to have COVID to deal with down the stretch here, which is just another nightmare from a logistical standpoint. Absolutely. And, you know, this is one of those things that people said that, you know, you would hear a lot of people kind of say, this year might be the worst year for certain things in the wintertime or uh, another year of it that people have just basically decided after being cooped up and indoors that they were over it. And you and you see that. I mean, there were uh, there was an event that an industry related event, at least you know, a, a, in a corner of the industry that that we're a part of, Mark. That yeah. you know, I had I had a good friend go you know attend an event, and he said, "Man, he goes pretty much everyone who virtue signaled about COVID um, online was there, acting like COVID didn't exist." You know, and he and his thought was they're tired of they're just tired of, you know, of it and acting like they don't care anymore, you know, and that's that can happen when you get cooped up, I guess, you know, and you're an extrovert. And so but folks, be careful out there, you know, I mean, you know, take precautions that you that you take, even if you've got vaccinated, you know, take the precautions that you need to take um, until you know, we get everyone vaccinated or we get a much, much closer to that or things start to really calm down. Things haven't really calmed down, but people are acting like it's over. And so, you know, it's a it's a tough thing. And, you know, hopefully those cases are are not severe. Hopefully they're most of them are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms. And, you know, and, you know, and from a football standpoint, you know, I mean, just another tough division for another and tough moment for that division, you know. Schefter just updated it. So it's Landry and Teller, who I already mentioned, Jedrick Willis, Austin Hooper, 
Drew Forbes, reserve guard. Jojo Natson, a receiver. Ross Travis, a reserve tight end. And Tack McKinley, who's been playing well for them defensively. Yeah. Those the, all, play, all have been added to the COVID list now. Yeah, that's, you know. And they, they play Saturday night, too. And so even if vaccinated, I think it's 48 hours, right? Like two negative tests in 48 hours. Like this yeah. is going to be a tight timeline for these players to come back in yeah. time for a critical game. And it's in the early window, too. It's like it's the 430 game. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. And so if you're losing Wyatt Teller and Jedrick Wills. Wills yeah. yeah, Jedrick Wills. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're – and you already have Conklin out, right? So I believe so, yeah. Yeah, because it's Hans who's actually in there. Conklin's been out. So half their offensive line, That's and you've got Kareem Hunt with an ankle, which is kind of difficult on top of that. Your best blocking wide receiver in Landry. Um, yeah, I mean, the Cleveland Browns, you know, it's going to be tough for them to overcome this to be able to get into the playoffs at this stage. I mean, yep. they needed every game at this stage, you know. But, hey, listen, you have a franchise quarterback, or you think you do, so, you know, this is the time for the franchise quarterback to carry it on his back, right? Marcus, Marcus. Exactly. To, I mean, this yeah. is this is Baker's moment this to, is, to, to, to step up and deliver. This um, is, yeah. And, and we'll see if he can. Yeah, and we'll see if he can. I mean, I, I'll say this. He's very prepared with the list of people that he that he knows is talking about him on social media. Though this he, podcast screenshot on his phone. Those I was told, though I was told by an analyst that he always says that he doesn't pay attention to any of it, but somehow seems to know about all of it. So, yeah. so there you go. Um, let's, you know, with that in mind, you know, Kurt Warner did a did a piece on it wasn't all Baker's fault. Mark's not trying hard not to laugh as I as I ask this question in a straight face. That you know, he basically said it wasn't all on Baker, and and a common. Analyst that we've been on shows with Mark mentioned to me, he goes, yeah, I felt like that that guy, and I'm not going to give the name. He, he said, I felt like Warner, you know, pretty much soft pedaled and defended Baker and only watched the first half of the game or showed the first half of the game for his analysis. So it was highly, very much incomplete and slanted towards Baker. He goes, but what do you expect? He's a part of the starting NFL QB fraternity and he's just, you know, rank and file with the fraternity. So is it, if is, you know, is Kurt Warner, the media relations point person for the starting quarterback QB fraternity? Is there actually one in terms of how they defend starters in the media, if they work for the Shield, you know, media company, um, or even big media that has huge contracts with the NFL, because I remember how players like former players like Terry Bradshaw would light into starting quarterbacks. I mean, not like they weren't lighting into like Case Keenum getting his shot. I remember him lighting into John Elway and saying that he was essentially, I mean, I'm not, I'm putting words in Bradshaw's mouth, but he was essentially a bum and a whiner and a baby and needed to like get better, you know, wasn't good, might never be good enough, you know, things like that. Um, and maybe Bradshaw was going too far, obviously, but what are your thoughts on this environment now where we've got, and we've seen Kurt Warner come to the aid of, you know, of his, of his fellow former NFL quarterbacks and almost felt like, Hey, you're, 
you're criticizing my buddy. Let yeah. me let me use my bully pulpit, and yeah, he's got a move. They got a movie coming out about. Yeah, you got a movie now too. And the first, and no offense to, well, I am gonna offend the probably somebody here with this, but you know, it's the first movie I've seen where the actual, the actual star, the actor playing the part of the star, isn't as handsome as the person who's actually oh. about. Well, there you, you know, go. You know, Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner looks more like the guy who's doing the Hollywood thing than yeah. than the guy who was playing Kurt Warner. But this kind of looked like a this kind of looked like a movie brought to you by like the producers of The Shack, you know, in yeah. terms of the way that they they did this. It was kind of one of those one of those and deals, which is fine. Kinda, but hey, what's kind of depressing about that movie is I, I'm now old enough where years ago it would have been Dennis Quaid as Kurt Warner, but now he's playing Dick Vermeil. <laughs> and that just makes me feel old. Yeah, that's um, true. <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a bit of a gut check moment. As far as the sort of quarterback media thing, like I, I do feel, and I'm guilty of this too. Obviously, not an NFL quarterback at any point or anywhere close to it. But you know, I I think there's a recognition from those that have like played the position at any level, just how hard it is. And so there's this sort of desire that. You know, I know how hard it is to do this, that, to do X, Y, and Z, to stand in the pocket and make a throw with the Vaughn Millers of the world bearing down on you that I don't want to lead into these dudes. And, you know, I, I think some of that is at play. Now, whether, you know, it's warranted or not, I, I think that's sort of a, a more interesting question. I, I do think that, you know, guys like Bradshaw, like, you know, that generation, like, they didn't care. Like, yeah, it's hard. That's the job. It's yeah. hard. And you're supposed to do this. And if you can't handle criticism from me, then how in the world are you going to handle it from your coach? Like get over it. You know, it's, it's, so I think there's sort of this, I don't know. It's easy to say it's a generational thing, but I think there is part of it to that where like this sort of newer age of like ex players that are now on the media side, you know, they don't want to like, they know how hard it is. They don't want to like get all over the guys. Cause they know that there's probably still 15 other outlets out there that are doing it anyway. And so there's also a sort of, you know, contrarian aspect to it. Well, everybody's dumping on Baker. Well, let me show you like all the stuff that he's doing well and how it isn't his fault. And I do think there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people on Brown's Twitter. They're like, yeah, it's great that you're breaking them down, but what about the second half? You know, what about the rest of the game? And so, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of moving parts to it, but I know from my own personal view, like the stuff I do, if I have a chance to be positive about, you know, eight different quarterbacks one week and maybe get, you know, just for a random number of million views, but the chance to be negative about one and get 10 million views, I'll side with the positive stuff. I'd rather talk about what quarterbacks are doing well because it's so hard to play the position than say, Hey, look at this, look at this guy. He can't play. And yeah, maybe those pieces do numbers, but eh, I'd rather be positive. There you go. And I, you know, and I respect that. Now I'll put it to this way. I, now, the way you pose either or question, I would reject that question myself as someone who does this as more of a, if I, if I have a chance to get, if I have a chance to get 10 million views talking about something positive about a player, but I have a chance to get, but I have a chance to get 5,000 meaningful views instead to be able to talk about something that is very truthful and, and endemic to what it is about evaluating the position that will help you see the game in a clearer way about that player that isn't being talked about. I'm going for the 5,000. That's where I'm going. And, and that all the respect in the world to get the, 
to talk about because the, the things that you're going to point out are going to be positive. I mean, but they're also going to be things that are going to be helpful and instructive, right. you, you know, but I think there's a balance here. And I think the balance here is ultimately a guy like Kurt Warner. All he has to do is take five seconds to say playing quarterbacks hard, you know, and that, yeah. that probably took two, two seconds, even with my slow draw. So, <laughs> it's, you know, if you say that and you make that a part of what you do as your intro early on, playing quarterback is hard. I know I struggled to get to where I was. It took everything I got to get where I was. You know, so all the respect in the world to the guy I'm about to break down, but I am breaking him down, you know, and and talk about it from that that perspective. And maybe you can do some pieces where you say, you know, I'm hard on some of these guys, but let's look at the truth here and talk about some of that. I, I think there can be some balance here that gives you a chance to see that perspective where it isn't suddenly... You know, big brother Kurt coming in to help little brother Baker or, you know, little brother Kirk Cousins or anything like that. Yeah, the where, Cousins one. I mean, because Warner jumped in on that discussion we were having a couple of years ago. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, I, you know, I appreciate that he that he cares about the people that he works with or that he's colleagues with. But there's a little bit of like, you know, when you have a bully pulpit, you know. I understand you use it and you can use it effectively, but you got to be complete with your analysis. I think a guy yeah. like JT O'Sullivan played in the league and he's not afraid to go after people. But then again, his sponsors are folks like you and me, you know, and individuals right. who want that. He he hasn't gotten sponsors by, you know, Viagra and Cialis and every pharma company in the world. And, you know, all the other things that go on that are big bucks and, they have an editorial say or feedback that make, gives them an indirect editorial say. So enough about that. Bryce, speaking of movies, speaking of movies, the trailer for Home Team just popped on the timeline. This is a Netflix movie where Kevin James, you remember Kevin James? Yeah, yeah. He plays Sean Payton. What? He plays Sean Payton the year Payton gets suspended and... You know, then Sean Payton decided I'm yeah. gonna coach my son's high school team. Yeah, yeah, love it. Okay, this so should there be you fun. Go. <laughs> yeah. We well, should do. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Now, now, is this literally based on it, or and like yeah. a re? A re wow. Based on the true story of him coaching his son's high school team. See, there you go. Yeah. That's something. You know, an underrated movie. Have you ever seen McFarlane USA? No. Okay. I'm just going to recommend this early to folks. I know that a lot of people have a very emotional attachment to remember the Titans. Okay. Um, and it's a, and it's a good, and it's a good football, you know, it's a good football movie for sure. Um, and a good sports movie, terrific sports movie for sure. Um, though I feel like some of it, you know, anyway, the, a movie that I think is actually better, low key better is McFarland USA, which is based on a true story of a cross-country team in McFarland, California, McFarland High School lot in California. I think it's Bakersfield, where there's a lot of fruit pickers, a lot of Mexican immigrants who come and pick fruit there. And this basically a football coach who got into one too many arguments or one too many conflicts with 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 fellow players and administrations basically has to travel there and decide, finds an opportunity to start a cross-country team with these 
guys who are basically from families of pickers and pick themselves before they even go to school. And it's a, it's based on a true story and it's, I think it's a much grittier version of remember the Titans, even for a Disney film, it's a little grittier. Um, well, maybe not much grittier, but a little bit more. And it's worth seeing. And Kevin Costner is pretty good in it. He plays the he plays the coach. I would highly recommend seeing it. It's not, I'll check that out. I yeah. remember when it came out, I wanted to see it, but yeah, yeah. I'll check it out. And I like Disney, and I like Disney movies, but you know how yeah. Disney put sprays the air freshener on pretty much every script oh, that yeah. they've got. You know, oh, yeah. they've got that Disney scent Disney. all over it. The Disney sensibility. There's yeah. a little Disney sensibility to it, but not as much as you normally see. And I and I enjoyed that. So. Bryce Young, what were you, what are your thoughts on the Heisman winner? Um, I thought an Alabama player should have won it. I thought it should have been Will Anderson. Yeah, I really, I, I wrote that last week that Will Anderson like should have at least got an invite. He did finish fifth in voting, but if you're going to invite a defensive player, Anderson's numbers were were so much better, I, I think, than um what Aiden Hutchinson did even though Hutchinson is a tremendous player he's going top five in the draft for a reason but when it comes to Young look I was very impressed I, I wrote a long piece on him at the end of last week basically going through the season going through his development going from like a guy that at the start of the year Samer was just excited that he was getting calls and protections right to a guy that they were putting stuff on at the end of the season and he was executing it at, at a really high level you know in the SEC championship game the touchdown to Michi where you know, he's coming to the inside. He directs him to go back to the outside and makes a perfect read and throw on it. I mean, he's a deserved winner. I think he's uh, he's a very talented quarterback. I'm very curious to see the draft cycle with him next year. Um, you and I have been through these battles before where we are going to spend the spring and summer propping him up to QB1. And September through October, we're going to start chipping away at that facade. So when it gets to be like Thanksgiving time, Spencer Rattler is again your QB1 or Sam Howell if he returns or somebody else is going to be your QB1 as we chip away at the Bryce Young facade. But I think he's an incredibly talented quarterback. I saw what David did on him. I thought that was fantastic bit of insight as well. That was a really good piece. So I'm excited about him. I, I think the size is going to be an issue listed at what, 5'11"? So I, I, that's going to be an issue. Not that it's a prohibitive thing, but it's going to be something that will be discussed. But I'm very excited to see him in the playoff in the next season. Yeah, and that article that Mark referenced, you know, in addition to Mark's work, you obviously want to check out a TD wire. You look at, you know, David Agono, who is a former Division One safety. He often gives that point of view, you know, that defender's point of view when he's looking at quarterbacks and he loves to study them. So you can check out the Bryce Young piece as well. Um, and he's also has one out that's going to be coming out this week on Max Johnson, the LSU quarterback oh, who grew up down the road from me, um, from oh, where wow. I, at least where I was in Athens before before I left Athens. Um, but yeah, um, you know, young. One of the things I really enjoyed, and I remember watching him in high school, was just how well he attacked the field. He yeah. was very good. He was very aggressive in his attacking of the field, but not in that high school quarterbacky sort of way that you often see. It was. There's a little bit more nuance to that aggression that I enjoyed. Pinpoint passer, I thought, in a lot of respects with his game. Um, and, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see. Again, you know, how tall is Kyler Murray? I mean, he's listed at, what, 5'11"? Yeah. And I mean, he, Bryce Young might be taller than him. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be, you know, I hear you. You're going to see the, you know, the media has this pattern, prop up, chip away, you know, yep. prop up, knock down, you know, and, and then redeem, you know, yep. that's basically the, the cycle. I don't know if it's necessarily the media as much as it is just society and the media being a reflection of that, but we can get to that chicken or egg argument at another time. Yep. Um, speaking of a guy who I think likes to set him up and knock him down a good bit is D Eskridge, who's I've referred to repeatedly as the little punk in a good way. Um, you know, I, you watch him, especially this week, there's a play against Houston. I showed on Twitter where Rashad Penny runs for a long touchdown and it's set up by a three tight end set with the tight ends all heavy to one side and Eskridge, the only wide receiver on the field in that, which should be telling for you because they're likely going to set up a play with play action where Eskridge goes deep. He's a speedster. Right. Um, but the other reason that he's the only receiver on the team is that he's already the best blocker of the receivers on that team. And they have a big guy who's, who's a refrigerator with jets on him by the name of DK Metcalf. Yeah. So that's a, and he's not a bad blocker. D Eskridge though has great, uses his hands in a great way. And he is probably the most psychologically advanced rookie of the receivers when it comes to one area. And that's the ability to instigate trouble and to play at the, that line between legal and illegal and get away with it. And in that on that play, he motions across the formation and he takes his inside arm and literally grabs the back of the inside arm of the defender and wheels him around before he then like leans into the guy and just dumps him into the ground, which opens the crease, helps open the crease for Rashad Penny to take off for a long run. I'm telling you, D. Eskridge, when you think of D. Eskridge in about Three, somewhere in the next three to seven years, there are going to be at least four to five fights on the field that D. Eskridge has started. Um, and at least half of them will be called against the defender as opposed to Eskridge. And people will talk about how he's a dirty player. Now, not in a Bill, Bill Lambeer trying to hurt you way, but in an instigation sort of like get in your head, get you off your game and force you to want to start doing punk things back. And at that point, Eskridge, like the expert professional wrestling heel that he is, will literally act innocent like he didn't do anything. And the officials won't have seen it either. So yeah. I'm just curious. What do you think about players who instigate this kind of behavior? And are there other recent examples of players like that in the league? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a emotional, physical collision sport, and so and so players that do this, they certainly serve a purpose, have a role. Especially, look as receivers, you need to be a blocker in the run game. I'm working through a piece on the Patriots run game right now for Saturday night against the Colts, which is going to be a battle. Um, and, and you see what those receivers are asked to do. You see what Nikhil Harry's asked to do. Um, so I think that's that's sort of a critical role to fill. And an example is Julian Edelman. I mean, Edelman was very much an instigator, you know, and, and maybe it's a slot receiver mentality when there's more physical play. You know, you're, you're asked to do more on the interior against some of those guys. You're asked to be physical over the middle. But Edelman was that way. And I think perhaps the best is Steve Smith. I mean, Steve yeah. Smith was certainly a extremely physical instigator type guy. Ice up son, like he has no qualms calling you out. And he's one of those guys now that has no qualms about calling people out from the analyst chair. And yeah. so – you know, I think those are two recent examples that come to mind. I, I think Larry Fitzgerald had some of that to him as well. 
with what he was asked to do as a blocker and the physical way he was able to play. But he had that, you know, sort of reputation as a, a very clean player, but he certainly used that to his advantage at times. And so those are three names that come to mind for me. Yeah, I I think uh, DeAndre Hopkins is that kind of player. Yeah. I think DeAndre Hopkins knows the line. You know, he's usually not doing anything dirty to a defender, but he plays in a way where he's like that person who insults you and you don't realize they've insulted you until after the conversation. Um, yeah. You know, he he punches people. He throws haymakers at people, but it looks like he just missed trying to use a release move. Um, yeah. And I think some some people don't realize that's what, what he's actually doing is trying to beat the hell out of you um, to get open. And, you know, I think DBs get it. Fans don't always get it and see it. Um, and that's why some of the... Jalen Ramsey's the same way on the opposite end of the field. I think he's an instigator who can get into your head a little bit with play that's slightly not legal or or just over the line between fair and foul. And he knows when to... He, he, he's watching for the official to go, are they going to call that? Are they going to call that? And and he'll keep pushing the envelope until they do call it. And then he'll, or until he knows that he's on the border of that getting called and then he reins it back in. And that's what I think Eskridge does very well is that he will shove you just after the whistle a little bit. He'll, he'll play you hard and continue to try and run you off the field as the whistle's blowing at the echo of the whistle. And I'll do this like five or six times until he sees the guy getting frustrated. And then he'll act like he's about to do it and and get to the edge of about to do what he did before and let go. And yeah. then that defender's already boiled over and has been thinking about what he was going to do if it happens again. And the official usually catches it. And, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, those are two players and you know, in a different way in Ramsey and Hopkins who stray the border of legality on routes, usually with in, what what's interference, you know, with yeah. Eskridge, it's more about how do I get you ticked off with me when I'm blocking you? Um, and how do I take advantage of him in that way? Because he's not a big guy either, which makes it even more, um, it's easier to instigate that way. Because when you're a little guy and you have little man, showing little man syndrome and being the jerk, you know, and doing it to that effect. I don't know. I like it because yeah. it's, it, it just shows, I don't like it as someone who watches him as an opponent, you know, if he's playing my team, but I appreciate the, I appreciate the psychological gymnastics that he's participating in because it is a skill. Yeah. So, so Boomer Esiason compared Russell Wilson's vertical shots at halftime to Jeff Blake, which I loved. I love the reference seeing that. Who's currently reminds you of a player who played before the millennium and who is that player you'd comp to? Tua. Yeah. And Boomer Esiason. Wow. Yeah. And I actually wrote about this a couple weeks ago. It's not just that they're both lefties. It's the ball handling skills. I mean, one of the things that I loved about Esiason watching him play run fakes, play action fakes, carry out stuff, the way he hit the ball on play action. He was so good at doing that. And if you watch too on some of their RPO stuff, some of their play action stuff, he's very good with ball handling skills. Like hiding it on the hip, hiding it behind the back. Like, you know, he's somebody that you know, like sometimes you see quarterbacks carry out run face and they'll just put the hand there. It's all with the ball. It's very creative and I just get flashbacks to watching Asaisen when he was with Cincinnati, Asaisen when he was with the Jets. And 
and all the stuff they would do in the play action game, particularly in Cincinnati under Sam Weish, and you know, obviously with Nicky Woods, you know, and the run game stuff they were able to do, the play action pass and stuff off of that. Like, I get boomer flashbacks watching Tua, and so I'll take the question and use the the example as the answer. I love it. That's that's you know high end right there, man. That's very high end, <laughs> high end work. I I would say a guy that reminds me of someone from before the millennium, Alvin Kamara. Now he's not quite as elusive. He's uh, he's not quite as a um, dynamic in his elusive moves as this running back, but Greg Pruitt, who I grew up watching, the former Oklahoma star who played with the Browns and the Raiders, was excellent as a receiver, underrated, excellent as a receiver, and just unbelievably difficult to to deal with in the open field. And he kind of became a bit of a caricature of himself as a runner at times with the with the ability to make people miss that where you see the highlights oftentimes and they look like he's just this wild Barry Sanders-esque type of runner who just wasn't quite as successful as Barry Sanders with being able to create. But, um, you know, you watch some of his best years before the knee injuries mm-hmm. and there's some highlights out there where you can watch a season full of plays with him unbelievable player who has that kind of mystical ability to make you miss or run through contact for guys that are much bigger than you than you know for a guy who's much smaller than you would expect to be able to do that so yeah take bigsby transferring the the speaking of running backs auburn star you know i know you know where do you see him going I mean, is there is there any news about where he's going? I mean, Auburn seemed to be like you would think that Auburn would be the place to to hang around, but no, now people are bailing. Yeah. yeah, Nix is transferred too. I don't have any sort of news to break. I wish I did, uh, but I'd like to see him at UCLA for pure selfish reasons because my buddy Ethan Young is the director of player personnel at UCLA, and yep. you know if Ethan can can swing some big recruits or some big transfers. That would be awesome to see uh, from a purely selfish uh, friend standpoint. I do think it's – I saw an interesting discussion on Twitter today uh, how the transfer window has ruined the backup quarterback position at the college level, which I think is a fascinating thing to think about because every quarterback, Bo Nix, Keaton Slovis, Spencer Rattler, you, use this, you lose your spot, you transfer. I mean, even Jalen Hurts, he's stuck at Alabama for a year to his credit, but then he left. Um, so that is something to think about. But for Tank, I'd like to see him at UCLA because they're probably going to lose with Charbonnet, the guy that they got from Michigan. He's probably going to the NFL, and so maybe they could slide Tank in there. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, you know, Felix Sharp gives a good good answer about this from what I read last night, and he talks about, you know, it's not going to be Georgia, mainly because – there's too many good backs there. Kendall Milton's yeah. the guy you really need to watch there, I think, from my opinion. But he's got an Eddie George vibe to him. Um, then, you know, you look at, you know, Bama ain't going to happen. Pretty crowded. Though they could yeah. use a back. They probably could have used Tank Bigsby this year. Um, it, his his thought was the volunteers, you know. Yeah. Because um, Cadillac Williams is the – is the running back coach there. They had a good relationship, former Auburn player as well. Um, they had a good relationship. They have a very good 
offense that's in the making in terms of their ability to, you know, pretty much set the table for a guy like Bigsby. He'd stay in the SEC and get a chance to compete at the highest level yeah. with an up and com- potentially up and coming offense. So that's that was his take with that. You know, if we're going to talk about friends in that area, then I would say I'm rooting for him to go to Rice, but I know that ain't going to happen. So <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. That's like a one man band in that case. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. From that level. But, um, you know, we had a question about, you know, from one of our readers, Benjamin Sandry, who, who probably sends me some of the most interesting conversation points, you know, based on some of the podcasts that, that the RSP cast does. And so he writes it this way. He's like, listen, I know that your area of expertise goes more to the side of individual technique, but I have a question regarding X and O's that I thought you or, or Mark might have some qu- thoughts on. Our drives within, on drives within two minutes at, at, on the end of either half, teams are more likely to score than they are on either drive on a points-per-drive basis. It, you know, it's only a little bit more that they score, but um, the rate is much higher um, because of a higher proportion of field goals on these drives. I'm curious if, if you or Mark have a thought on why this is. And he's given a few possibilities. Um, and he's not sure which is likely, whether it's any of them or a combination. But most people attribute this to a team wanting to the win more or some of the narrative stuff that you see. Um, yet it holds true for all teams across a 10-year span. A slight rise in points per drive, a significant rise in score, did not score rate across 32 teams. This is true even when excluding garbage time when the game's more than eight points out of reach in the fourth quarter. And here's some of the possibilities he thought of. Defenses get tired before offenses. Defense and offense get tired, and the consequences of a tired defender making a mistake are more significant than a tired offensive player making a mistake. Hurry-up offenses are more effective at scoring points, but people don't use them all the time for some reason. Coaches save the best offensive plays for the last drive, or the break tendency on the most on the last drive. He's seen Belichick and McDaniels. He's a Patriots fan, I believe, by the way, up in your neck of the woods. He's seen Belichick and McDaniels break tendencies with routes out of the backfield in the last two minutes of the half. Um, do prevent the prevent defenses, make it easier to move the ball. He knows it's a prevailing narrative playing the boundaries deep and the deep field, allow the offense to move the ball easily, but it tends to allow points. Um, and why do it? Um, why not just stay in base as opposed to use prevent in this case, especially, you know, um, you know, so that and the, the herd mentality decisions are an attempt not to get fired, you know? Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? I, I, I think, you know, it's a fascinating thing to think about. You could probably spend an entire episode just, just talking through this. I think, Game script has a lot to do with it with respect to the, the prevent stuff. I mean, obviously, if you're up 25 points at the end of the fourth quarter, like you're going to be in prevent, like go ahead, complete 10-yard curls in front of us. Like we don't care. We just don't want to get beat over the top and give you something easy. So I think some of that might be a play here. But I do think, you know, where my mind went first on this is to tempo. You know, I, I do think that the use of tempo, the use of a quicker pace, the use of no huddle, that certainly does play to the offense's advantage because 
you know, you can get defenders out of position. You can get defenders thinking before the snap. You know, fatigue does sort of set in in that moment. You might be able to catch the defense in, in, in a package where, you know, they're outmatched in one way or another. They might be more base or more heavy and you're, you know, lighter or you've got a, a flexible personnel package with flexible type players that are hybrid players like, like a wide receiver tight end type or a back receiver type that puts a defense in a bind. And so I think tempo is where my mind goes first. I, you know, I, I, I'd be surprised if coaches are like keeping the good plays in the bag. Uh, you know, I, I think if you've got a good play, like call it, like don't save it for, you know, a, a tempo situation at the end of the half or the end of the game. Like, like a I grandmother who says, says this might be worth something someday and put it in their yeah. closet. And it's, yeah. it, it's a, it's some Chotsky. You know, no, that's no, like I don't, I don't, I don't think that's more than it was. Seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's more the tempo thing than anything else. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a combination of all of it, to be honest. You know, other yeah. than maybe the saving the plays, because at the end of each half, usually have the players have seen enough, the coaches have seen enough with their charting to go, all right, this is something that's happening. You know, I saw, I saw Coach Vass. You know, a you know a a good friend of Mark's and a fantastic, you know coach and presence on Twitter with a lot of the work that he does talk about joke about how, or somebody talking on a thread with his about, you know, the idea that Aaron Rodgers wasn't reading the safeties, but reading the, reading the defensive front in a game. And they were kind of laughing and poking fun of right. that idea. Um, but somebody brought up, maybe they read this Doug Peterson article you know, this article on ESPN about Doug Peterson charting plays and noticing what a defensive lineman was doing, you know, on a fire zone, the way that he was, that he was the last to set his hand into the dirt. Yeah. Now, maybe that doesn't inform how a quarterback reads the field, but it's those little things that happen in games where you see the Patriots go, this is how they've been playing this all along as they're on the sideline. Let's run something where we just make this little adjustment. You don't have to tell the rest of the team. You just right. have to tell the receiver to say, yeah. you know, run, run this and sell this route and then run it like this. And I'm going to hit you. And, you know, that's the type of stuff that happens at the end of halves where you can make that little playground like adjustment based on what you've seen where a coach can note a tendency and tweak it just enough. You're not going to put it in your game plan every week. But it's, yeah. but that's the kind of adjustment that that happens. That's that's particularly skilled, and I think that's what leads to it, along with tempo. Because yeah, you're tired. You've been doing things the same way, and then you switch it up a little bit like that. And it's things that don't always make the interview, you know, because people aren't going to notice that little difference. Yeah. They're going to think it's a play call as opposed to something like that. So. Yeah, I'm also I'm kind of intrigued by the idea that defenses get tired before offenses. Like that sounds like a like a fascinating idea to explore. Like sitting here right now, I don't know if there's truth to it or not. But conceptually, the idea that you're playing guys are coming to you, you're kind of getting pushed back. Like I think there might be something to it, but I don't know how to like quantify it or define it or prove it. I think it's easier. I think psychologically you could imagine that it's easier to feel like you're being tired if you have to react to everything all the time because yeah. you're the one reacting to it. Now, if you're an attacking defense, you probably don't feel as tired because you're, again, psychologically, you're the one in control. And right. So there might be something to that depends, you know. <laughs> I would be interested to see 
how many mistakes blitzing defenses actually make if they've been blitzing all this time and whether they're a little fresher as opposed to a team that hasn't been blitzing and then decides to be super aggressive at a time that they normally wouldn't be and then they get beaten, you know. But again, these are these are all nuanced kind of ideas that, you know, no one's probably going to get to for a long time. Right. Because <laughs> we just don't have the we don't have the data to look at it. So who are some prospects and notes this week for you, Mark? Isaiah Likely, tight end, Coastal Carolina. I do not know what to make of him. Um, I was watching him Monday night, and it was funny. Like, I'm, I'm in my office downstairs, and right over my right shoulder is the tower of video game consoles, and my son is back in a Madden phase. So I'm down here trying to watch uh, Isaiah Likely while he's, you know. My son, I think, and I told him this, I think he's the only person on the planet that only plays defense when he plays Madden. I like this kid. Yeah. He, he only wants to play defense. All he wants to do is play as a corner, you know, or, or free safety and just play defense. He'll simulate the offensive stuff. He's like, eh, I don't like it. That's kind of boring. I want to play defense. I love it. I, I like seeing it. Um, this is, this should, this should be an on the couch episode with Sigmund Bloom. Cause then there we could go Sigmund things. going, Sigmund going, See, Mark's a former quarterback, and the son wants to be a quarterback. My son is such a contrarian because over the years, obviously, as a Patriots guy, Tom Brady guy, like the Patriots, like he dressed as Carson Wentz one Halloween. Not Tom Brady. <laughs> he dressed as Carson Wentz after the Eagles beat the Patriots. In Super Bowl. I mean, I re- and you know how Brady's game career in New England ended with a pick six? He asked me that we were at a family uh, brunch the Sunday after they lost to the Titans that playoff round. And he turned to me, he's like, what was your favorite Tom Brady pick six? Was it the one he threw against the Titans or was it the one he threw against the Dolphins that made them lose home field advantage? And he was in like third grade at the time or like second grade at the time. And so he's a, he's a masterful troller. I'm dreading the day he gets on the bird app. Um, but so I'm watching likely on Monday night and I'm working through a bunch of plays and something isn't, quite right something looks off so i'm like oh and come here look at this guy tell me what you see when he runs and owen watched one play and he's like he doesn't move his arms he like keeps his arm and owen like did it like running like ran around he like doesn't fully pump his arms when he and i honestly kind of couldn't get past that i'm just like this is just weird it's just a little awkward to see but you know He's certainly athletic and raw, um, very much a body catcher. Like he lets a lot of stuff get into his frame. Like he had a very, he had, I, I watched a couple of his games. I'm going to do something on his game against Arkansas state. He had a nice four touchdowns in that game. One of it was a nice contested catch situation in the end zone on this like sort of out corner route, but he even let that get into his frame in a contested catch scenario instead of going and getting it. So there's talent there for sure. I'm, interested to see how he looks in drills like this is one of those players where you want to see them do drills at the senior bowl like you want to see like will he start extending the hands will he start attacking the football instead of sort of letting it come to him or not um so i i honestly i don't know what to do with him i think he's certainly somebody to monitor might be worth like a flyer from an nfl perspective on day three but i just i I'm excited about a lot more tight ends in this class than I am for him. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think he's a very graceful tracker of the football. Um, yes. And, yes. And he turns in high points at the last moment really well. And he's someone who tracks the ball over his inside shoulder on vertical routes well. And he's someone who can, you know, make overhand catches with targets that have some real mustard on it. Um, and you see a lot of guys don't do that very well. He has those late hands and high points with the easy snatch. Um, and I think he's also someone who can turn to address the target um, even at his numbers and his jump back technique's good. A lot of big yeah. guys who rebound, they do the Colin Johnson thing that I talk about where it looks like they're they're reaching back to like get onto a recliner in midair, you know, yeah. and basically ruin all the position that they had you know, doing that. And he's someone that jumps back early, goes straight up in the air, like what you see with Je um, Jefferson and Chase in the NFL. Um, but yeah, he's not a big dude. And, you know, it, he's he's going to have to show that he can do all of these things as a receiver, as a big receiver, unless he right. can be 260 and still be as, as fast as he is. And, you know, a lot of these guys, it's hard to, to get there, the Fred Davises, the 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 Reeds, you know, yeah. the guys like that who who have that, and I don't think he's the he was nowhere near the runner that Reed was, you know, at this stage. So so yeah, he's an intriguing player for sure. Um, Jerome Ford, man, watching him at Cincinnati, yeah. he's the he might be one of the. I'm starting to see more running backs I like um, from this class, but. He's certainly near the top of the list. The former Alabama transfer dude can open his hips in an instant. He's so confident at getting within like, you know, I, I mentioned this. I have a thing on my site about, you know, where I profiled him for about 20 minutes on video. You can check out at mattwalmanrsp.com. But I talk, I lead off in the, the kind of the explanation about him, about Gail Sayers saying, give me 18 inches of daylight. And yep. Jerome Ford is the type of guy who knows that all he needs is 18 inches of daylight. And he'll close the gap to 18 inches with an, in an unblocked defender to set up creases. Um, I don't think he's 220. I don't know. The listing of 220, maybe he is. You can see it, it's always hard for me sometimes with certain body types to tell right. what they are. I could see how maybe in from the hips below that maybe he has some of that extra weight and he's in the 220 range. But if someone told me he's 205 or 208 and, and fighting to get to 210, 215, I wouldn't be shocked. You know, yeah. um, he has a little Jamal Charles to his game. He knows how to kind of bait you in and then, you know, flip the hips and get outside. But he's he'll play inside as a runner. He understands he has some really good contact balance. When, when you're running back and you can stop short of a defender shooting across your body, and you can kick one of those legs up really high, you know, behind you so that you can counterbalance yourself and then continue to, so that you can counterbalance yourself so you can stay in stride moving forward when you restart. Um, you know, there are a few backs I see who do that very well. Um, one of them in Cleveland who's got no offensive line and, and no Kareem right. Hunt to spell him this week. But, you know, I see some really good work from Jerome Ford. He intrigued me. Wow. Yeah, nice. yeah. Um, he's got to hold on to the ball, though. That's the big issue with him. All right. What are five throws you'd want to make if the universe gave you five completions at the NFL level? Um. All right. Well, this this should be fun. 
Um, I've got them written down right here. Matthew Stafford, backside dig. You saw it Monday night to Odell. The ability to read a concept and to flip your feet, your hips, and just drill in that backside dig route, throw it to an absolute, you know, within an inch of where you want to put it. Absolutely incredible. So give me that. Give me Patrick Mahomes this week, slide into his left, then throwing 53.5 yards downfield to his right while rolling to his left at six miles per hour. The ability to do that, let me make that throw once in my life, and, and I'll be happy. Justin Herbert, the throw he had to Guyton. Again, just that throw is literally off the, the next-gen stats passing grid charts because they, they couldn't make the grid long enough to get all this stuff he did underneath as well as that throw. And he's doing it after rolling to his right, stopping on a dime, and then throwing downfield. Those are my first three. Aaron Rodgers throwing the safety splitter against too high with an underneath defender and trail man coverage, putting that throw into a shoebox. Yeah, give me that one too. So those are the, the, the four that I want. Now, from a selfish perspective, smash concept, sprinting out to your left and hitting the corner out. I could never do it. I could never do it, Matt. I threw that as an interception. Every single time I tried it, it, it was one of those moments where your your stomach, your eyes are bigger than your stomach, right? You, you think you can get it. And I couldn't do it in high school. I couldn't do it in college. So just for once, I'd like to know what that felt like to be rolling to your left and to be able to hit that throw and get it over that cloud corner who just every time I threw it and he's trying to split the difference between the hitch and the corner, just I threw it right to him every single time. I just want to be able to hit that throw once. That's awesome. Those are an awesome selection of plays. And I'll, I'll any of the Patrick Mahomes plays that kind of fit into that realm of what you just described from what happened this weekend, absolutely high on yeah. my list. No doubt, without a doubt. I would add um, Russell Wilson's throws where he has to sprint outside the pocket and yeah. then climb. There was one that he had to to lock it this weekend yep. where, you know, the pressure's coming from his right. He slides to his left leisurely, climbs, and fires that ball downfield. I'd like to know what that's like to hit, to hit one of those Jeff Blake-esque, like, you know, big throws off of a scramble like that. Um, I would say... I would like to be Brett Favre after Russell after um after Warren Sapp just mowed over me and I got up and talked trash to him and then get up and then like basically make a throw, you know, where he squeezes it. You, you know, let's say uh let actually you know what? Nah, forget that. Like he has the I'd like to see the Brett Favre throw as a Viking to Greg Lewis. Yeah. You know where he's scrambling and throws that thing, what, 55 yards downfield to the end line, yeah, you know, to, to win the game. I'd like that throw. That would be my third one. Um, I'd like to, uh, I know this, is, this is like masochistic probably, but I'd like to be, I'd like to be Steve McNair in that, um, in with the one yard short throw. Um, mm. I would like, actually, I'd like to just to see if maybe, just to know what that's like, how that feels, because it's got to yeah. that feeling's got to be crazy. But then I would have to add the throw that he had before that that led into that drive, where he basically avoids half the defensive front and yep. keeps it alive, you know, to fire it in there. So what is that four for me? Yep. You know. So then, um, I would just like to. I'd like to know what it was like to to 
just pick a, a crazy Jeff George throw. Like any of the crazy yeah. Jeff George throws where you're like, how do you make a throw like that? Because he was on the realm of Patrick Mahomes in terms of like the way he wasn't as graceful and some of the and daring some of the ways in a successful way, but the way he could sling that ball, I'd want to I'd want to know how that felt. So yeah, yeah, yeah. all right. Pick them, Joe Green or Reggie White. Reggie White's obviously an appetizing choice here with this hump move that sort of redefined the position. But in speaking of redefining the position, Joe Green, yeah. I mean, to make defensive front edge players, defensive tackles, you know, household names, that's pretty impressive. And in that era, yeah, that era was a crazy era. Yeah, I, I you know that was a ballroom that was a barroom brawl era. You're going up against guys like Conrad Dobler that would literally like bite you and try to break your legs. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd want to be Joe Green. I want. I, I remember watching Joe Green um, basically anticipate a Miami Dolphins run at the at the Dolph at the Steelers one where he literally jumped over the guard and center and and basically tackled Larry Zonka at the exchange point. It was yeah. just one of the most insane things I've ever seen. Um, Devontae Adams or Stefan Diggs? Adams. Adams, his release game is so smooth. He, he's just so much fun to watch. That slant route touchdown that he had, just ridiculous. Like They're both great, but give me Adams. I'm with you for the exact same reason. Yeah. Earl Campbell or Adrian Peterson? Love you, Blue. I mean, give me give me Earl Campbell. I mean, they're again, they're both great, but Campbell's ability to run through you, around you, by you, and that again in that era with the tearaway jerseys and stuff, and plus like being a running back in that day and time for the Houston Oilers, like that's kind of cool too. Yeah, to be, to you know, I I mentioned in our football guys roundtable last week, I had a fill in the blank type of like. If I could be any, you know, if I could be this player doing this, I would do it. And for for me, the moment would be Earl Campbell basically putting my helmet into the sternum of the Rams linebacker as my jersey's getting ripped off of me. Yeah. And basically it making it look like he's a bowling ball, literal bowling right. ball through the, through that. And you feel uh, the air just suck out of his lungs as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. But I'm gonna go the opposite route. As much as I love Earl Campbell, and my 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 emotions tell me it's Earl Campbell, but I want to know what it's like to be Adrian Peterson to be as advanced in years as he is, and still have most of his skills left, other than the top speed. I'd like to see. I'd like to. I'd like to be. I'd like to have Peterson Peterson's ability. I think Peterson was a more well-rounded back, to be honest. Um, but it's so close. I, I, it makes me sick to even not want to say Earl Campbell. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, Bernie Kosar or Philip Rivers? Bernie. Me I too. Yeah. As a kid that grew up, you know, it was interesting when you were doing your five throws and you said, you know, maybe it's a little masochistic. I thought you were going to go something of Elway, like on the drive or something against the Browns. But, you know, as, as somebody that had a soft spot for Cleveland in all those games that, you know, saw Birdie play a couple of times live, like the arm angle, the sidearm throws, like, you know, I, Birdie, I just got a soft spot for him. He was a good, he was, 
he was a good quarterback, and he was the type of quarterback that he put them in position to win. Yep. Whereas, like, Phillip Rivers was a terrific quarterback. Don't get me wrong. But he also put he, – he did a lot to put his team in position to lose in big moments. Yeah. Whereas, Kozar was the opposite. Um, he just – they had some – they had some bad things happen, you know, down that line. But no, I don't want to be that horse faced, you know. You know, anyway, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Much respect to John. He's a great. He was a great quarterback. Um, <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, all he right. was. Pizza. I want to know, Mark. Thin crust is that new that you know new that New England, New York, you know, Italian crust, Chicago crust, Detroit crust. Where where are you on pizza? I'm very much, um, traditionally speaking, in that sort of New York, thick, folded over, like Chicago style deep dish. That's a casserole. Like, nah. <laughs> I mean, my wife's from the Chicago area. Like, you know, she was born in Nebraska, but really was spent most of her time growing up in in Naperville outside of Chicago. And so, yeah, like I will order and have delivered Lou Malnati's deep dish stuff every once in a while have it shipped because she loves it but it's a casserole come on it's it's not pizza for, for me it's, it's you fold it over it's greasy the grease is dripping off you don't dare you know blot the grease off of it though like no 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 we don't do that here um so yeah i mean that's kind of where i i historically was i mean now you know trying to cut down on eating bread um in, in carbs I, I gravitate more towards like thin crust but traditionally it's that new york new england like fold it over let's go give me all the grease you can yeah i'd have to say that's that's kind of where i am though i don't have any issue with chicago pizza at all i love chicago pizza i mean it's good except, but it's, it's not ex- pizza yeah i i'll say this the thing that i don't like about chicago pizza is that I'm not a huge cheese person like that I and you basically right. are eating a you're basically eating a block of cheese you know when you eat Chicago pizza it seems like a lot of the time you know yeah. so but love the crust Detroit I've never really had Detroit style pizza um, so I can't say um, or really good Detroit style pizza but I'm interested in checking that out but yeah it's the New York New England area kind of Italian thing you know that i'm i'm more into as well yeah. um that light crust as well i like the light crust too where you get right. more of the italy thing toppings you gotta have um obviously i lean meat uh pepperoni and sausage are two favorites um i i will do you know meatballs i kind of like meatballs on, on pizza uh, it, when we start talking vegetables one of my favorites banana peppers I, i'm a huge banana peppers person i grow them I've got some pickle in the refrigerator right now. I like banana peppers on like cheesesteaks, for example. I love putting banana peppers on there. But banana peppers and pepperoni on pizza, like my stomach will hate me the next morning, but I love doing that. Um, so, I mean, a, a pepperoni banana pepper pizza is something I'm a huge fan of. Nice. Yeah. You you, you get along with most everybody in this in this house. Oh, there we go. Who wanders through this household. I'm a, I'm a basil guy, fresh basil. I want fresh basil on my pizza. Nice. That's the one thing that... I, I'm good with it, pretty much everything else, but um, but fresh basil is the one thing that I like on mine. What's the topic right. you just won't eat? Anchovies. Yeah, me too. My my, my grandfather, my, my wife's uh, dad, whenever we would get pizza, like anchovies was like a, a 
you know, a special treat for him. And so every once in a while we'd get anchovies on pizza and my mom and my aunt would, would eat it sometimes. I just could never do it. And I know, look, it's salty fish. Like I'm, if I'm going to eat all the cured meat I do, then I should be able to eat anchovies. I just never was able to do it. Yeah. I'm the same way. And I'm not an olives person. I just don't like black olives. So. See, my wife, you know, she'll go mushrooms, black olives and I can do it. Like, it's just not, you know, it's not what I'm going to gravitate yeah. towards. Anchovies are like a hard no. Pretty much anything else I'm fine with. Pineapple and ham on pizza, like, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, but anchovies are just a hard no. Now, if I could get some, like, king oyster trumpet mushrooms and, and I could saute them myself and put oh, them on the pizza, that might be yeah. fun with some with some thing. But olives, yeah, to me, olives is like a minefield that I've got to pick my way through. And I really don't feel like picking my way doing Mine, minefield duty on a pizza. Um, what's the best frozen pizza you've had? I'm going to answer that in a second. I, I just don't want to forget, as we're having this discussion of pizza, I was talking about folding pizza over and saying pizza in the sort of Boston accent. Uh, Jerry Remy, uh, who played for the Boston Red Sox, was a Boston Red Sox announcer and broadcaster who sadly passed away. He had a long, extended bout with cancer. If you get a chance and you haven't watched it, look up. The Patriots Day game that the Red Sox had a couple of years ago, maybe a decade ago, against the Angels. And there's the pizza incident where there's a fly ball down the left field line. The Angels are in the field. And player left fielder for the Angels goes into the stands to try to catch it, and it gets kind of interfered with. And then they come back from the commercial break, and Jerry Remy does this breakdown of a guy throwing an entire slice of pizza at the person in the front row that like interfered with the left fielder and they like break it down. They telestrate it. Don Orsillo, who's the play-by-play guy is just <laughs> crying like tears down his face. Cause Remy's like, and here comes the pizza. And they slow mo with the pizza, like flipping <laughs> over in the air. You can find it on YouTube, Red Sox, Remy pizza. It's, 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 I'm getting a classic. It's classic. It's absolutely classic. So, so watch that. I wanted to remember that because we lost Jerry Remy a couple of months ago and, and it was a great moment of Boston sports history. But as far as the best frozen pizza, for everything I said about Chicago deep dish, Lou Malnati's. Because you, you can order it. You can have them shipped. They come frozen. But you bake them. And they're incredible. And so if you're interested, there's a website. Obviously, I know because of my wife. We do a lot of stuff like this. Uh, tasteofchicago.com. You can get like Portillo's scent. You can get Lou Malnati's. You can get the Portillo's. Like there was one uh, birthday where I had all sorts of like foods from my wife's younger years uh, sent to us. So you had Lou Malnati's. You had Portillo's. I had uh, Valentino's pizza sauce from Nebraska. Valentino's is a you know a well-known fast food chain in the Nebraska area. Had some of their sauce shipped out. We had some Runzas shipped out. But Lou Malnati's does a good frozen pizza. That's nice. I'm gonna go. I'm not going the the hoity-toity route here because I, I I never knew of that, and now I need to. This is you the second time you mentioned Tastes of Chicago, so yeah, so you, you know we're gonna unofficially adopt them as a sponsor here. But uh, but yeah, I I'm gonna go California Pizza Kitchen. Yeah, just as something you know, they do pretty good with their ingredients on you know with their pizzas, and I you know that's not bad in a pinch though. You know, when when I'm really was seriously in RSP time, I would have gone with some of the Stouffer's ones that my that my daughter left in the in the freezer for I don't know how many years that I that I dug out of there and go, what's this doing here? She's like, she hasn't been in the house for X amount of years, and the the preservatives seem to be good enough for me that I was all right. I might actually be I might actually be 65 and not know it because of the preservatives that I've eaten here. So, um. 
If you have to make a drive from New York to California and you have 50 to 60 hours to do it, you know, say, you know, you've got to make the trip. You have this dream opportunity, you know, like a, a, a high profile gig, a, a Toto concert, you know, where you get to like, you know, front row seats and meet the band afterwards. Coaching with Joe Montana, you know, maybe coaching from Joe Montana, something like that. You know, I want to know what kind of vehicle you'd want to drive and who you'd want to choose as your partner to make that drive. It can't be family. Um, but, you know, and you've got, you know, it's not going to be a cannonball run where like I looked at Google and someone did it in 27 hours and 25 minutes. But Google says it takes about 43 hours without stops. So you have to take some stops, but you still got to kind of hurry through, you know, 50, 60 hours to do it. Who are you picking to make that drive with you? Well, first I'm picking the vehicle. And as somebody that our, our SUV is an Acura MDX, I'm not as much as I like it. I'm not doing this in an SUV three row wagon kind of thing. Every time I take it in for service and I, I take a few minutes to walk around the showroom because I want to see the Acura NSX, which is a spaceship. And I, I read it off their Wikipedia right now. The new version of the NSX has a 3.5 liter twin turbocharged V6 engine, three electric motors, altogether capable of close to 600 horsepower. The transmission is a nine-speed dual-clutch automatic. Its body utilizes a space frame design, which is made from aluminum, high-strength, high, ultra-high-strength steel, and other rigid and lightweight materials, some of which the world's first applications. The first production vehicle sold at an auction for $1.2 million. If I could drive that cross country, it almost doesn't matter who I'm with. <laughs> but since you're giving me the opportunity to pick anybody, you're going to want somebody that can entertain you. You're going to want somebody that can almost be like you're living a podcast experience live. And there are a lot of names I could go with here. I could go with Dan Carlin from Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I could learn something along the way, although I'm afraid that I might fall asleep. So I'm going to need to be entertained. I'm going Martin Short. Martin I think Short. for like 60 hours or 50 hours or whatever, he can tell me stories about, you know, his career. You know, I, I dream scenario, I get, Mar you know, Steve Martin and Martin Short together because the two of them are awesome together. Their, their new show, on, on, I think it was Hulu, um, Only Murders in This Builder or something like that with – I think it's Selena Gomez was the actress. I loved it. It was, it was awesome. But if I have to pick just one, it's Martin Short, because if nothing else, he can then transform into Jiminy Glick and just start doing crazy goofball physical comedy while we're barreling down I-90 at a high rate of speed in the Acura NSX. Wow. I like that. Yeah. I would say I would want one of those old-fashioned 70s vans that look like the Scooby-Doo van. Yeah. Maybe more in purple, kind of like you know, kind of with the, you know, with the whole detailing, you know, one of those, one of those vans where you could sleep in the back, you know, so it's kind of, you know, but still can, still has enough horsepower that you can get around on those things. And so I, I'd want to do that. And just to see if my wife's listening this week, I'll say, I would like it to be stocked with the cans of peaches and have Regina King joining me. <laughs> See, I didn't want to get myself into trouble. I mean, that's well, why I sort of went the Martin Short route. I mean, yeah. my wife's never going to listen to this, so I could have said everybody yeah. else. But well, when I get a when I get a knock on the office door, 
you know, then I know that I, I know that something's funny is going to be happening here at, at, at any moment. So there we go. I'm going to test fate and see what happens here. And if I don't get this, then I'll, I'll tell her while we're on vacation in Hawaii. That should be yeah, fun. Yeah, there you go. So um, a city or state you've lived in or visited extensively, but think you'd like um, to live there just from what you know. Well, which one are we doing? The one you visited, or the or one that you have never you've never visited? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've, for the first one, I've, I've only visited there once. Spent a week, London. Like, if if I could live sort of anywhere that I've only been for a brief period of time, it's London. The history, just the city, like, like the proximity to other sort of historical things, like Stonehenge, Windsor Castle, stuff like that. Like I said, we spent a week in London. We barely scratched the surface of it. It's a place I want to get back to. Actually, in our bedroom over our bed there's a, a print of the london skyline um I, I just i absolutely love london i mean westminster all of it so yeah london i was there for a week i was at the university of chicago for like a couple of days and then drove out to iowa to go visit schools um back in my early 20s that's really the only time i've really been to chicago so i'm yeah. gonna say chicago because um, yeah. i really didn't get to see a lot um but I have a feeling that I think I'd like living in Chicago. You would. I you mean, because for the next one, Chicago could be my answer. I've spent a lot of time in, in Chicago. Um, and, you know, I always thought about saying that of places that I've spent a good deal of time where I'd like to live or where I could envision myself, Chicago would certainly be there. But I'm going to sort of go quieter. Gettysburg. Gettysburg, nice. Pennsylvania. Um, I've visited Gettysburg a ton. Um, walked those hallowed grounds, um, stood on Little Round Top, uh, stood at the high water mark, um, driven through it, and at night, and it is a. There are stories and legends that like ghosts still walk the grounds at night of that battlefield, and you can feel it. it it's just you drive around at night, and then you ultimately get pulled over by a park police officers like you're not supposed to be out here at night. Um, you know that's happened to me a couple of times as well. But just being in the, it's just it's just an eerie setting. Um, but I love that. I, I love Gettysburg. I love the history of it. Um, obviously a portion of a dark part of this country's history, um, but an important one and one to sort of recognize. And, you know, there's a little part of me that, you know, has dreamed of opening up like a little restaurant when I retire in, in around Gettysburg. Um, there's a wonderful place, the Dobbin House. Um, they've got some of these beautiful, like old homes that they've turned into restaurants that are, that are fantastic. Uh, but Gettysburg. Nice. You know, it's it's funny. For someone who doesn't like horror movies, it, it would be fascinating to see Mark Schofield operating a bed and breakfast at a place where it's probably more haunted, haunted than anywhere yeah. in the United States. Um, I would say Asheville. Asheville, North oh, yeah. Carolina. It, you know, it's where my wife and I got married. It's where, um, it's a place where we had one of our first away dates um, for the weekend. And I just... You know, I like the climate. I like the mountains. I like that it's a little on the weird side, but not too, too weird. Um, you know, it it's it, it just has, you know, it's going to give you the kind of the full range of weather, um, but nothing too crazy on any end of the spectrum. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to be close enough to other cities that, you know, it's far enough away that you kind of have to make a trek to get there but it's not too long of a trek. So I could see I could see Asheville as a place that if if I'd like to stay where I am probably for the long haul, but if 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 I had to switch it up or had 
too many memories here or something like that and and decided that I needed a, a change of venue, I could see Asheville being high on the list. Nice. Yeah. I've never been to Asheville. Like my wife's sister's husband is from the Carolinas, went to UNC. Um they've been there a ton and absolutely love it. So I I'd love to get there. Yeah, it's great. I mean they've they've you know, there are, I've been to a number of college towns and a lot of college towns tend to think that they are all that and, and more and they really aren't, but it's right. just because they came from a lot of the residents came from like not really being well traveled and they 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 like to think that there's something they're not, which is fine, you know. I mean, they're always nice places. But Asheville is the kind of town without a major college there. On a, you know, I mean, there's some colleges for sure, but it has that vibe. But also, it's a little more grown up yeah. as well. There's a more grown up element there, and it's not grown ups trying to go back to their college years. Right. You know? So I've lived in a college town long enough, and Athens is wonderful, and there's a lot of things that I love about Athens. Um, but you know, there's a little bit of that element to. To Athens yeah. that I described, whereas Asheville, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more grown, and I like that now. Well, listen, you know, hopefully we weren't too grown for y'all, and you enjoyed. Hopefully this, not. You know, hopefully enjoyed th this show, and certainly you can subscribe to the RSP Cast, and you can find that available at pretty much every platform that that that's offered out there to subscribe. Um, you, you can contact us with questions that you would like us to answer on the show, football or non-football. You know, we're more than happy to do that. Yep. Um, and on behalf of Mark and I, thanks again for listening. And we really do appreciate you. And get that yep. RSP. You, Please you, do. You know, go buy it. Go no, out no, there no. and get it. Go, go, go. All right. Thanks so much.